and welcome to Olivia My My name is Noel Fogel. My guest this week is Eric Blakely. Eric, very talented writer and director. He wrote and was a showrunner for 21 Jump Street for a little while. He also created the uh, Jump Street spin-off Booker, starring Richard Rico. He wrote for Wise Guy, one of my favorite shows, uh, the Sonny Stilgrave arc, and we talk about that, Ray Sharkey, and one of Eric's missions back then was try to create a show featuring a bad guy as the lead. This was before obviously Sopranos and The Shield. Uh, you cannot get it done. He also directed and wrote the 2000 film Gunshy, starring Liam Neeson, Oliver Platt, and Sandra Bullock. Give it a rewatch, or if you haven't seen it, watch it for the first time. It's really underrated. It's, it's good. And Oliver Platt was never better. Eric created Prom, the People's Republic of Movies. He talks about that project. Very interesting guy. Really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So, Eric, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. I know that uh, you're overseas now in London. That's where you live, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you just sit back and watch basically the shit show that's going on in America right now? Um. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a incredible i think the world is at this amazing turning point and the kind of the covid pandemic kind of allowed everybody to stop we've never seen i i don't think capitalism has ever had the global economy shut down this is an amazing thing this is a way for us to look at everything from our political systems to our social economic at, you know, an ecosystem, you know, the, the, the earth cleaned up, you know, did some nice cleaning up, you, you know, you walk around LA and it's got clear skies and you, you, it, you know, dolphins swimming, you know, in all of these ports. And um, it's, I, I think, I think it's been an amazing and positive thing. And uh, I think that there, there has been a shift of consciousness. I, I, I love it. I'm, even though I'm getting a little stir crazy being locked down in London, but uh, yeah, have you like taken you know this time like in quarantine to actually be productive? You know, some people just sit there like lumps, and I'm sure like you actually were working on stuff. Well, I've been I've been very productive, uh, packing on the kilos, <laughs> and um, um. <laughs> Uh, we have been we have been working like maniacs on on the People's Republic of Movies. So uh, there's so much to do, and everything kind of stopped. So we could we could also take a look at some some new things we could present because there are going to be for the next couple of years easily some changes in the film industry. Uh, I was talking to a, a financier, and he said, you know, we're not going to be able to get insurance on actors, you know, if they, if in the middle of the shoot, they get the virus, which will shut the production down. So they're going to have to be very inventive. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to shoot a movie, um, you know, with, you know, Brad Pitt and the company won't insure him getting ill and shutting the production down. You've got to rethink things. So um, I also think we're going to have an opportunity to see kind of some new ways of, of, of telling stories, you know, we're becoming so aware that we're, we're stuck here. And uh, I think we're going to see some amazing things. And that would even go down to the screenwriters too. They'll have to write, you know, for, you know, obviously TV and film a little differently interactions mm-hmm. with, the, with the characters. So that's gotta be, you know, a little difficult for them as well. 
Yes, yes. Well, we, we are building a, a, writer's, a writer's block, a writer's building for in the virtual studio, and that will be the first building we come up with. We're hoping it will be ready by September, which will have a virtual writer's room, which would be a kind of three-dimensional world that people can interact in and hold kind of the next level of, of meeting in. Right. Now, like I said before, you're overseas in London. Uh, how did you uh, end up in there? Okay, well, uh, how did I end up in London? I have a long history. I, um, when I was 17 and I was a musician and I was just accepted at Juilliard and I came to London for two weeks uh, before, school, uh, before the school term started and I joined a band and stayed for five years. So I really kind of came of age here in London. And um, when I went back to the States and kind of disappeared into Hollywood for 20 years, and uh, then I kind of stepped away and decided to, to continue my love affair with Europe. I, um, I went to, I, lived, I started by living in Belgrade for a couple of years. I, I, I ghost wrote uh, three metaphysical books for this kind of Rasputin-y dude, which was an amazing experience. I went to live in Portugal for a while and um, started working on, on, the, on the great novel. And, uh, but all that time I kept visiting friends in London and playing with musicians again. And so um, it just eventually just pulled me back here. So uh, this is a great base for me. I have lots of people in London. It's the most sophisticated city in the world by far. And, um, and I can jump over and, you know, Spain and Morocco and Italy and, you know. And originally being from New York, it's just like a flight home from LA, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and I'm I'm pretty much, I mean, all everybody is gone from. New, I have you know one great friend left in New York and an auntie, uh, so I don't really go to New. I, mean, I go to New York like once every five years or something, and um, but I you know obviously I go to California at least usually once a year. Although I'm I'm, I'm I missed last year, and I have tickets for September, but I don't think we're gonna. We're going to come to California in, in September. Yeah. And imagine yeah. a lot of people's travels are, are going to change. Yeah. Yeah. As a result of this. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but going way back, what like got you involved, like, in, you know, in the arts and like, you know, being creative and, you know, writing? Um, school was just so fucking boring. I would just stare out the window and dream of better scenarios than and we're going on in their classroom, you know? And, uh, you know, it just started with, you know, fantasies of the Nazis raiding my school, killing everybody and me rescuing the cutest girl in class and taking her to live, you know, building a raft and going down a river, you know? Next thing you know, you're doodling away. Right. <laughs> How many of those stories that you like wrote back then actually, you know, mounted to something, anything? <laughs> Nothing. No, just I, I, I think it was, uh, you know, just fertile ground for for the imagination. And I found uh, that creativity pu uh, pulled me in more than, say, you know, I mean, when I was a little kid, I played with guns like everybody else. But it, it became more about concocting romantic fantasies than ever actually wanting to shoot anybody. And then you know, the, the music boom came from England and I was a little kid and I saw it as a way to, 
kind of be rescued from a, a kind of gray flannel suit commuter lifestyle. And that was it for me. I was like, no, this is. So then I'd imagine. A, a, strong, <laughs> a strong influence of my dad. It was very offbeat. He was like the first weightlifter. He was a Mr. New York in like 1947 or something, you know? So and he was a wheat germ nut and bohemian. And, you know, his, his guys were all that Kerouac generation. Okay. So that obviously, you know, they, they were kind of like these these genius hobos, very very much like you know Woody Guthrie and all. So that that was their kind of ideal. So then it was easy for you just to uh, kind of go that way. There was no resistance from your father then. <laughs> uh, my my dad was just funny. All he ever said was no money. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. You know, and uh, I mean, of course, he helped me, but he, you know, was, he was a guitar picker, so he loved that. Uh, he was a very technical guitar picker, so he, so he taught himself how to read. He knew every chord in existence, and I was an ear player, and I was in awe of his ability to read and and understand music theory. And he was in awe of my ability to just listen to something and go, "Oh, here's how you do it, Dad." You know. So yeah, so there was a, a nice balance there between the two. <laughs> Not at the time. Not at the time. You look back now. Teenage boy wanting, you know, to do his thing in the world, you know, sees his amazing dad as an impediment. And, you know, I couldn't wait to run off to Europe and, you know, and, and become a Beatle. You know? Of course, yeah. So then I would imagine the Ed Sullivan show was the moment for you. Yeah. 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 Okay. Absolutely. That, right. that was life-changing. Yeah. Truly. Truly. Yeah, I've had a lot of people on the show mention that, you know, that's, that's the moment that they knew they wanted to be a musician. And... Well, it was, it was the moment, you, you know, um, it was almost like this 50s ended in 1964, you know, like when the Beatles appeared and, and all the British boom and everything came and was changing everything. And, you know, we're just little kids seeing this stuff and going, you know, but, but the images, uh, the holdover image from post-war uh, America right through to the mid to late 60s was of, you know, this proper father in a suit and tie going into work. And, and you know, I, I grew up with, a, you know, a kind of hillbilly weightlifter bohemian um, and, and what I thought would be a kind of Eden in New York City. And then, you know, my mother wanted to be normal, moved to the Bronx, out of the Bronx into a, a suburb. And it was just oh my God, this is what life really is. Right. Everybody's dad looks exactly the same, except my dad. I'm the only kid in school with a whole wheat bread sandwich. Everybody else is just rows of white bread, white bread. White bread. I'm like, fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm fucked. I, I won't be able to fit in with this. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, this new, you know, kind of uh, consciousness and this explosion of creativity and art and craziness. And, uh, it was it just, I just said, wow, okay, it can be a color. It does not have to be a drab. Right. Yeah. You were before your time because now every kid has a whole wheat sandwich. So, you know, like the outcaster is the white bread. So it's, I, know, I know. You can be a freak by walking in with your white bread. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> True. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I grew up in Queens, so I, I knew, you know, New York well, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're all New York kids. Yeah, exactly. So then when did you first like venture out to the West Coast to become a star? <laughs> um, 
You know, I'd, I'd kind of done my time in London. I went back to New York in a winter. It was too friggin' cold. And I'd met somebody who said, come to California. So I went to California. I kind of, you know, picked up, you know, gigs, you know, playing weddings and, you know, little clubs and that kind of thing. But I, I came to this realization that I might, in fact, be better with words. I, I was a really, really good bass player. Very, I mean, right up there. But I wasn't elite. I, and I knew I would never do anything to elevate music. Okay. But I, I suspected that I could find some clever things to manipulate with words. And um, that, that opened a whole other universe uh, to me. And uh, I, I'd originally, I wanted to be a short story writer. I just wanted to express myself in those little tight bursts of pure creativity. Um, I was in LA kind of like living in, you know, like the beach bum life. And my best friend was a stuntman. And he said, you know, you're, gonna, you're never going to pay your rent as a short story writer. Why don't you become a screenwriter, have the house with the swimming pool up in the Hollywood Hills. So we went to the movies last night. I can't remember what the film was. He said, just, just look at that. Take, you know, analyze it, see if you can do it. So we, we came out of the movie and I went, yeah, I could do that. So then I just started, you know, writing scripts till, till something caught. And then um, I was writing movies, but eventually I got discovered in television. And that was just this super fast trajectory to, you know, to kind of to being a showrunner, uh, you know, of a big hit series. And uh, so, yeah. And Crime Story was the first show that you got? First show I got, I got a freelance episode of The Equalizer. Okay. Crime Story came right after that. Okay. But I can't remember uh, exactly. I, I, the Equalizer, then I did Moonlighting, right. then I did Crime Story, then I, I went on staff at this terrible show called Houston Nights, you know, just a cop show, you know. And, um, that led to the big break was, I, I and then I did Max Hedrum, which I wanted to go on, but I was offered the, a, a staff job on Wise Guy, which was a, you know, breakthrough show. Uh, first time that we featured a, a bad guy that was, you know, kind of heroic. Yeah, Sonny Steelgrave. Yeah. Sonny Steelgrave, played by Ray Sharkey. And um, he was the only one who was capable of capturing the kind of humanity that our hero could fall in love with. And what was interesting about that show is I, I, I always wrote the hero of the show, the cop, as the bad guy and the betrayer. Right. And I wrote Sonny Steelgrave, the bad guy, as as the good guy because he was pure. Right. And um, yeah, you know that was. Uh, I mean, Johnny Depp did the same film with Donnie Brasco was wise guy, note for note. Okay. Uh, the same relation, central right. relationship, and it was a terrific film. But yes. it, he was a big fan. He was in the he was in the building with with us because they had Jump Street and Wise Guy were both Stephen Cannell shows. And when I left Wise Guy, I I went on to Jump Street, and then they they put me in charge of the show, and so I spent some time in you know on Twenty One Depth Street. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we'll we'll stay a Wise Guy now. I was going to get to it later, but I, I love the Wise Guy. Um, it was like one of the earlier shows that featured like the story arcs. I had the you know the yeah. had the Sonny Steelgrave one that you worked on, and you hit a great great point how um, Sonny Steelgrave was pure. He was just being himself as well as, you know, Vinny was, you know, the cop the pretending, yeah. you know, obviously, to, you know, betray um, 
Ray Shark. I mean, that, yeah, and for me, that was so deep a, a central, you know, a central dramatic conflict, which is no matter what we do for a living, if I'm I'm making you think I'm your best friend, and but you really are feeling that way toward me, I'm committing that deepest, deepest level betrayal of of of, of our relationship, you know, and so and that's was the way I wrote it, and it was really super interesting and super inconsistent television. We did some seminal episodes that were so elevated and we did some just God awful, just, just misses, you know? I mean, it's, it's gotta be hard because I'd imagine the season was what, 22 episodes, like 24 episodes. So yeah. it's, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's hard to just crank out, you know, quality for 22 episodes. You know, they say- It was impossible. You know, one of the great things about, which I think the last 20 years have been a golden age of television, right. in, you know, in that, you know, these are all the children of wise guy. The Sopranos doesn't happen without wise guy. Right. And, um, but the, the, the idea that they take half as many episodes, right. I mean, when I would finish a season of 22, 24 episodes, I was a vegetable for the next two months. Right. You know, people, my, they, people would, uh, my wife would take me to a dinner party with other people and I would just kind of sit there going, and so, what happened to this witty guy? Yeah. I used up all my words on the season, you know. Uh, it's, it's true. Now, do you think Wise Guy would have been more successful had it been out now? Because you just would have had, like, say, the Sunny Stillgrave arc just for one season rather than have, like, just 22. Well, I mean, if we came out with Wise Guy now, people have already been there with The Sopranos and other shows like that. So it's like if you came out with The Beatles now, would it be successful? Well, no, we've kind of heard that kind of thing before. So um, it, was, it was before its time, definitely. When, when, I, when I left Jump Street, um, I went into development around Hollywood, and everywhere I went, you know, they were like, okay, kid, what do you want to do? And I said, let me do a show about a bad guy. A, a show about a bad guy is going to be the biggest thing in television. This would be, this would be like 1990. Okay. And uh, would, it would be like nine or 10 years before the Sopranos appear. And I did, I did do an amazing pilot for CBS that they, they loved. And, you know, they gave me another deal. And the, the head of CBS said, I can't put a TV show on about a bad guy. I will lose all my sponsors. Um, and I, and I was, you know, scream into all, the entire industry bad guys are gonna and they, i had a nickname a dark man everywhere i went they would call me dark man right. which is kind of funny because my writing has a kind of light comic touch but yeah. but they my i my my need to do a show about a bad guy it was just it was uh, kind of uh, i was like ahab running around, you know, that was my great white whale. I didn't get to do, I did it on Wise Guy, but I didn't get to do it the way they presented it, like The Sopranos, which was extraordinary. Of course, and then eventually The Shield uh, as well. I did a Shield pilot as well about a corrupt cop at ABC for Ray Sharkey. Okay. And they, they couldn't put it on. They just said, we're putting him in a comedy. I was like, your comedy's going to die. You know, you, you can see things unfolding. Yeah. And you're always fighting the system. And the system is always, a corporation will always go with the safe bet. Always, always, always. And um, nobody wanted to take a chance on a show about a bad guy, no matter what. No matter that I was coming off being the showrunner of 21 Jump Street. And I did Wise Guy. We won awards. Ray Sharkey was incredibly hot we could not get a show with a corrupt cop on the air right that's that's a shame 
yeah, now we're definitely well, not going to get a corrupt cop on the air now. <laughs> the way the way that life is. Well, I mean, there's you know, there's definitely some interesting things that can be done right now, yeah. and and I mean, I know what they would be, but that would never ever fly in television. Right. But it'd get a lot of viewers. Yeah. Did you uh, watch Wise Guy after you left? Because they had some also, you know, great arcs. You know, the Prophet one and you know uh, Jerry Lewis as well. Did you keep watching? Or no? Well, I was on the Mel Prophet arc, and 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 uh, and I actually wrote the death of Mel Prophet. Okay. Um, um, which was Kevin Spacey played, and right. he was a Wise Guy. Never captured that recaptured that chemistry that Ray Sharkey and Ken Wall had. There was a love, there was a genuine like between the two guys and there was a purity of the, of the, of, of the relationship. I, there was no way for, for um, Kenny's character, Vinny, to fall in love with Mel Prophet. Mel Prophet was a psycho drug addict who was sleeping with his sister and you know, talking to spirits. You're, you're, not, you're not gonna be like, I so relate to this guy. I just can't betray him. I mean, it's just like, yes, we got to get this maniac in jail. Yeah, right now. And the same, it, 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 it never. They tried. They tried with the music arc to have him a little bit more sympathetic to to the musicians, and they tried with the with the with the garment district. But he didn't personally. His character didn't have that close connection that he had again. Yeah. So um. And and I, I actually didn't watch the show. Very, I, I I look at an episode. I tend to when I when I finish something, I I'm done with it. And I it, you know it's kind of like I don't know calling up your old girlfriends or something. I don't do that. Right. You know. So um, you know I I would but I was in the same building as the guys and wise guys, so they would tell me what was going on, and I could see what they were trying for. And I was I was close friends with the president of the studio. And we would share, you know, we'd go out for a meal and have a couple of drinks and talk about everything going on with the show. I just left Wise Guy and the new show that I was doing, Jump Street. Yeah, it, it was because you mentioned that there was really no inner conflict with, with uh, Vinny trying to bring down, like, Mel Prophet. Like, like you said that, there, there truly wasn't. Yeah. You know, a conflict trying to bring down, you know, uh, Sonny Stilgrave because he genuinely liked Sonny. Yeah. yeah. He did right. not have to make any emotional investment no. in any of the other criminals. Right. It's true. That's right, because my mom loved that show, too. For one of her birthdays as a gag gift, I got her a wise guy calendar. And <laughs> yeah, so she, because uh, she loved Ken Wald at the time. So I was like, all right, here, I'll, I'll, I'll found, found, I forgot what store it was. So I, I bought it for her. She loved it. And it was like 88, 89, I guess, calendar. But it was... Uh, somebody in the early 90s wrote a very cool wise guy book okay and they I, I, they interviewed me a couple of times for it and it, it was a, a more it, it, it's very people are very protective of what they do in the industry and i'm i'm dangerously candid and so it it, it, it kind of it was it was a good way in to see what we were up to right now they, they remake everything do you think they, they yeah try to remake that show again? Well, you know, never say never. I don't see why, because as I say, television has progressed so far, but the thing is, is that corporations like branding. Yeah. So if, if anybody has a name recognition, they'll try to do it again. It would be a mistake because 
as I say, the, the, we did Wise Guy and we had that amazing Ray Sharkey, Sonny Steelgrave arc. And then Johnny Depp and Al Pacino did Donnie Brasco, which was kind of the quintessential Wise Guy episode. Um, I don't know why you, you, you just try to cash in on the name, okay. you know. I mean, they remade Hawaii Five-0 at CBS and, you know, that took off. It was just a name and they're just, okay, let's go. Yeah. Right, and then even like you know, Twenty One Jump Street. We'll get to a sec. They made two movies out of it, and completely went a different way. Which it was, it was very enjoyable. But you know, I guess if you're going to do that, you can kind of go a completely different arc and just use the name. It's a perfect example. It's a brand. You just use the name. The the, the movies were comedies, and yeah. Jump Street. While we had some comic episodes, it was you know it was a dramatic show, and. Uh, it was an opportunity for Johnny to finally kill his character off, which has been plaguing him for, you know, 30 years. Right. Yeah. yeah. So how did that show come about to you? Um, I was in the, I was signed to the, to the Cannell company and I was on Wise Guy. Um, Jump Street was the number one show on Fox. It really propped up. It was a new network at the time. Right. My, uh, a good friend w had created it and was running it and he'd hit a wall. Um, and uh, the network had, uh, there, there was an episode they were about to film, uh, which was already in prep, which the network refused to accept the script. It was so bad. And Patrick, w you know, walked into my office one day and he said, Blakeney, you gotta help me, buddy. Uh, I got five episodes left in the season. I've hit the wall, I'm friggin' burned out, you know, you know. Um, and uh, the staff is in chaos. Uh, the, the network is going to shut me down. He says, I, he says, I don't want to pressure you, pal, but if you don't do this, I'm going to jump out your window. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, so I jumped in there. Um, I rewrote the script. It was already in prep, so I had to, it was cast. I had to use all the sets, but I rewrote the script in two days. And um, they shot it and it was such a massive rescue of the show that my star just shot up at Fox, which I hadn't worked at Fox, but I was at the same company. And when Patrick Steele was up at the end of the season, I, I took over the writing of the last five episodes of the show and kind of semi ran the thing. Um, when his contract was up and they didn't want to pay him because they were kind of cheap, Right. Um, they, the, the president of the company said to them, look, we just had a guy say rescue the show. We're paying him peanuts compared to what we have to pay Patrick. Let's give him the show. Right. You know, and it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. You know, they came, you know, they came to me with all the politics and, uh, but they said, look, you'll be, you'll, you'll be in charge and, uh, we want you to do it. I said, oh, okay. Right. Was it difficult, like writing for characters that you didn't create at first? Well, I I'd, I'd been writing television and I hadn't created the first show. The first character I created that was on television was the Richard Grieco character of Dennis Booker. So um, I brought that next season. I wanted to shake up Twenty One Jump Street, which I thought was a little too cutesy. So I was looking for a kind of Mickey Rourke kind of bad boy to throw into the mix and. Right. And Johnny was trying to leave the show, and I knew they wouldn't let him leave the show on, unless they found a pretty boy to replace him. So there was, you know, I, I thought I was being clever about that, but I wasn't. Johnny was so angry that I brought in a rival. Right. That, you know, I don't, th I don't know 
he's forgiven me to this day. Whereas the first year I was on Jump Street, he and I would, you know, play music together. We were both in the Jump Street band that would play the rap party. Um, you know, we'd go drink, you know, yeah. and it was a, it was a good, it was a cordial relationship. Right. Uh, so, and it, yeah, that's a little. Did, did uh, Johnny and Richard Grieco get along on set then or no? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Absolutely not. Johnny was furious. Right. Okay. Richard was just happy to be there. You know, he was just like, hey. So what would happen? Johnny would throw a fit and refuse to do a script. And then we'd just give it to Richard. And then, you know, it would do well. And, you know, and then Johnny would get more pissed at us. And it's like, it, 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 was, it was a difficult season. I mean, you know, when, when, when you have an angry star on your show, uh you've got a handful i mean it was and it was it was kind of it, it was strange for me because w once i started directing films i i discovered this incredible love for actors and respect for what they do and and respect for their courage but when i was a showrunner and i wasn't directing them actors were just a pain in the ass you know what i mean they would do they had this problem and it was just here's a problem here's a problem here's a problem and i never got the other side which was kind of you know the beauty of i, I mean i i mean, was really lucky the first the, the only film i've directed uh starred liam neeson who takes such care with what he puts into his role and is so pure and every, most of that cast they were really really brave actors you know oliver platt yeah. just incredibly skilled so so it was a, a, a kind of complete eye-opener for me how and to this day i love actors since then i just you know i don't care if they're a pain in the ass i don't care if they're difficult we'll find a way to do it they're they're they're, they're amazingly brave artists who give you everything and now i love them right so basically when you're a showrunner you're more or less a babysitter? A lot, you know, um, you're babysitting, um, you're, uh, you're putting out fires all the time, you know, you're dealing, I, I was good creatively as a showrunner. I wasn't, you know, a brilliant manager of people. I'm, I'm first of all, I'm too direct. Right. You know what I mean? So uh, uh, I'm not a, yeah, I'm just not a good enough politician. So you know creatively it's good but right I'm, yeah we're like you're, you're just dealing you know you're dealing with the network um we didn't we did an episode I, I you know one thing i had in common with johnny depp was he hated the cops i always hated the cops i, I wrote work wrote for all these cop shows yeah. and the thing that uh, i brought to the shows was it was a distrust of police so it enabled me to kind of to, to, to bring that eye to it, I, you know, whereas most cop shows I worked on, they were all cop groupies. They loved hanging out with our police advisors. They loved pretending to be tough guys. And um, there was an episode I wrote where the guys on Jump Street were forced to, because I also hated the premise of Jump Street, um, which was that we're sending a bunch of narcs in to bust our kids in high school. I thought this is about as despicable a premise for a TV series as you could get which is in many ways why I did so many good episodes for that show. Um, so we did an episode where, um, where um, the, the Jump Street narcs have to go undercover in, in a kid's prison for some crime there. And they have to look at the faces of all the children they've put in jail. And it was, it was very powerful, very devastating. And the script was way too dark 
for the network. So um, now this was an interesting thing because the network refused the episode. And um, I didn't politically, I had no clue politically how to navigate these waters, but the president of the company did. And he so believed in me and what I was doing. And this was kind of, I mean, this was, there were political forces that felt that they should be running the show, that like this was their opportunity. When the script came in, they told John, my rival on the show, the other guy who wanted to be the showrunner, told Johnny, this is a terrible script. I get a call from Depp. Uh, I get, my assistant goes, uh, Johnny Depp's on the line. Uh, I put him on. He says, Blakeney, your script stinks. I'm not doing it. I said, Johnny, wow, you know, this is, you know, this is a subject that, you know, I know is near and dear to you. And I said, are you telling me like the scene where he's in the tunnel with the, with the girl from the, from the, you know, from the other side of the prison, you know, that, that didn't work for you? He goes, well, I didn't read the script. I said, <laughs> I said okay, Johnny, do me a favor, read the script. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it, brother. I will find some other way around it. Just tell me. Fuck you, I don't want to do it. So I never heard from him again. He, we, um, while this is going on, the network is refusing it. I've got a serious insurgency over this prison script. Um, the network, the, the president of our studio tells the network who are refusing the episode, he said, fuck you, we're shooting it. You can, you know, you don't have to buy it. Um, Depp gave spectacular performance there is a moment where he's in this tunnel where this you know that this other girl from the other side of the prison she must be 15 is has come over to have sex with him and he's the the, the impact on his face johnny's a great actor and you know, the kind of lone tear came out of his eye and um the episode was a massive success we got so much critical acclaim for it everything the network were all just about to chop my head off, they'll, oh, Blake, you know, they gave me my own show, you know, all kinds of, but these are the kind of things that you have to navigate as a showrunner that, that uh, again, if I had not had Peter Roth protecting me, I would never have gotten through. And, and later, um, when they gave me my own spinoff, which was the Booker character, I was kind of done with dealing with Jump Street. I had this idea to do a kind of, this would be a couple of years before Twin Peaks. I wanted to do this detective show with Booker. I wanted it to be how dangerous normal America was. A little bit blue velvet, like all the madness and dangerous people are not the freaks and outlaws, but the straights. And the network were just, Fox was like, what the hell is this? And I got fired from my own show. So I went on to, you know, yeah. to do my thing and, and continually try to do something crazy in television. Now, do you think, like, because Fox obviously was, you know, the redhead stepchild back then, the fourth network. Do you think they would try to go a completely different direction than the big three networks? You would think that, but it, it's interesting how success works. Fox did become that right. in spite of what they were. They were trying to become a safe, normal, middle class network. All the shows that they put on that were safe all failed. Right. The only thing, the, the two big successes they had were Us, 21 Jump Street, which was 
you know, a little cutting edge for what narcs were doing. There were no, there were no shows about narcs, maybe, maybe um, the mod squad in the sixties, you know, but that was, you know, they were grownups. We were busting, you know, 15 year olds. Um, And then married with children, which was just a gross comedy. Yeah. And they hated it. They hated, they hated married with children, but what can they do? It's, you know, married with children and, and 21 jump street are there two big shows and then once the simpsons took off for them which was groundbreaking television they had no choice but to embrace the fact that you know what our weird shows yeah save us our our safe shows all die yeah. so they they uh, they found their identity it wasn't by design i promise you it was not by right. design yeah i mean every battle i had with them was you know 21 Jump Street, it's a seven o'clock show for teenagers. Can't you make it nicer? I said, if we make it nicer, everybody will hate us. They won't watch us. Kids want to see something edgier. And I would constantly be proven out. Every time we looked at the numbers, the numbers for our dark show would, would, our dark shows would go up. And I was constantly in a battle with them. I said, okay, we'll do a boring, nice show. And then those boring, nice shows would, you know, and then we weren't trying to make them boring, but we were trying to make them nicer. They'd all die. And I was like, guys, look what's happening. The kids are telling us they don't like these little, you know, safe Disney shows. You know, they want something with some bite. Right. Yeah. And then eventually Fox had the X-Files, which was totally, you know, paranormal, so to speak, and which was fantastic. It would, it went that and way. that would really be, you know, Four or five years later, right? They they start if things started going that way for them, and once it went that way for them, they just saw okay, we're not going to fight this. We've got the Simpsons, we got you know, we've got the X Files, we got cutting edge shows are scoring for us, and they went that way, right? So when you were still on Booker, was did the network leave you alone, or did they give you even more pressure? On, on no, as I say, they fired me, right? For where I wanted to take the show, I went home. Yeah. I didn't do those episodes. I, I created it. I created the show. I had an idea, a template. I, I didn't, you know, Stephen Cannell was in conflict with me. It was his company. He wanted the show to be Uzis and Jacuzzis. Yeah. And I didn't want an Uzis and Jacuzzis show. Uh, you know, I, you know, I thought we had an opportunity to do something unique. So they fired me. They made the show Uzis and Jacuzzis okay. one season. Barry Diller hated the show and right. he killed it. You know? How long were you on the show before they fired you? 20 seconds. <laughs> as soon as I came up with the, as soon as I pitched the pilot to the network, the channel had come to me and he wanted me to do kind of a standard channel plot, you know? And I, I, I said to the president of the company, I said, Look, I, I, I have a different eye. And I, I got, I, I said to Stephen, I, I said, Stephen, uh, even, even before this, he and I had had some meetings and I said, look, let's do a series about a bad guy. When I was still at Cannell's. Yeah. And, and he said, well, you can't do a show about a bad guy. I said, Stephen, we just did a show about, we just did Wise Guy. That yeah. was about a bad guy and the cop betraying him. And it was our biggest success. If we do a show about a stunny steel grave, everybody will go nuts. He says, well, he, he, it was like I was speaking, you know, an alien tongue to him. He couldn't understand the non-traditional police role, even though he kind of created that. But there was an interesting thing. I mean, 
When I went on to Wise Guy, it was very much the kind of traditional channel thought process because they were all cop groupies, all of them. And Stephen very much loved the police. And David Burke and I had done Crime Story and we, we were definitely more edgy. And I, I remember there was one of his um, non-writing executive producers said, now listen, when you st start the season, make sure that once an episode, you pull the limousine over, Sonny gets out and kicks a puppy. And I said, no, 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 we can't do that. Once an episode, we have to pull the limo over and have Sonny rescue a puppy. And then, you know, and, and God bless him. They were, you know, I was, I, I, I didn't have the status to be able to say things like that to a co-executive producer, but they were very kind, very generous to me. And as you know, this kid's good, let him run. And so I, the, a part of that was, I was demonstrating and David Burke was also, you know, and, and we were friends, rivals, you know, uh, there was a love hate between us and, and a real synergy that kind of set a tone for the show. We were constantly dueling with each other and trying to outdo each other with cutting edge television, which, which really helped the, the, the TV series. Um, but yeah, we were always fighting that, you know, that thing. I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Oh no, that's, that's totally fine. <laughs> Do you think now like networks are gonna cut back on, t on cop shows? Oh God, I, you know, I, I, I think they're gonna, try to do some cutting edge co-op, you know, copaganda, right. which is we're gonna try to show some of these issues and they're gonna try to show that while there are some bad apples on the force, they're mostly good. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not supposed to get political on your show if I'm talking about this, but okay. the truth of the matter is, is if, if cops cover for other cops who commit crimes, which the Brotherhood demands that, then they're all complicit, right. right? If you and I, if you and I are out driving around, we pull over. I go in and I, I, you know, rob a bank, and then we drive off together. Guess who's coming to jail with me? I am. You, right? Right. So you're complicit, and the law sees it that way. So if you and I are cops, and I strangle somebody on the street, you're, you know, you we you have immunity now because you're a cop. We all have immunity to do. But now everybody's fed up with that. So you're. You know, you have to be obligated to do the right thing and stop me from murdering somebody in the street. You know, that's kind of where we are now. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I mean, we're we're at an interesting moment. I think, as I said, you know, earlier, um, we can we can remake our society for the better, or we can go to fascism. I my prediction is where one of the two things is going to happen: a great breakthrough and the next social step higher for us, where we make democracy, the ecology, the police force, everything work at a higher level, or the fascists just take over and they just, the history, you know, the, the history of business uh, says they back fascism, you know, the, the, you know, you know, the industrialists backed his, Hitler because they, they're, they, you know, they were in danger, you know, at, at the end of the Weimar days of, of, uh, you know, socialists taking over uh, that was the that was the dynamic of the day there there's there's something evolutionary going on and we're, we're using older language but something new is happening so i i, I love i love yeah. the change right it seems like this time it's gonna stick 
because you know the previous times it's like they uproar for like a month everyone voices their concerns whatever and then it's done it goes back to the way it was and yeah so this time it's something really positive it's going to come out of this i think you're right and i think the covid uh quarantine took people into a, a into a collective kind of reflection right. the amazing it's never happened in our it's never happened in the history of capitalism where an entire economy shut down. Everybody was forced to do what? Sit there, watch Netflix, think a little bit more, mm -hmm. you know, but so you're just thinking, you're reflecting. Yeah. It's quiet outside, you know, the traffic isn't roaring by. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's like you told 7 billion, 7 billion people, okay, for the next three months, you're going to have to meditate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Meditation gain weight. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk about like uh, gunshot. You mentioned it before. And ironically, you brought up the term dark man. And you had dark man as your leading character in the movie. Uh, that was funny. Yeah. 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 yeah the, 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 I love the script. It was so clever. It was, you know, really well. Yeah. Is it easier when you write the movie and to, to direct it rather than have someone else over your shoulder kind of, you know, I want to do this way, this way? It was a strange, strange confluence. As you, you know, as you know, it was my first and last film in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I'd been, uh, I moved out of Hollywood. We moved up to a vineyard. I was kind of doing freelance film, film work. And I got asked to go to, I, I'd set up a, a thriller at Lumiere, which was an independent company. I'd been asked to go work on Mad Max in um, Australia with George Miller. And I had a tremendous amount of heat when I came back to town. And I, I had this great idea. I, I'd, been, I'd been playing with um, an idea of a cop who loses his nerve. I'd kind of been, you know, kind of done with the, you know, the superhero cop thing. So, so you know, and, um, but I didn't, I hadn't cracked the story till I was sitting there in Australia. Then I realized that, the, that what the movie was about was that everybody is undercover. Nobody has, nobody can be who they really are in public. Nobody. And uh, so we're all, we're all undercover. So that was, so that was the thematic glue that enabled me. So I wrote this script on spec. I had so much heat at that time that we didn't go out to the industry. We didn't send the script out. I didn't, first of all, I didn't want the network of assistants to have the first look at it. So we, we went out to the industry and said, if you want to read the script, you have to drive down to the office. We will send you, put you in a room. You can read the script and get back to us later. It's, it'd be impossible to do that now unless you're Tarantino or something. Um, the, re, the response was insane. It was the hottest script that, that season in Hollywood. We got huge offers of, of over seven figures for, for the script, to buy the script. But I wanted to direct it as a first-time director. That, um, so a lot of places that wanted to buy it, like Warner Brothers, they made a two-picture deal with me. There was, so a lot of things, there was all this energy. But I was insisting on directing it. So it was, it, it, it was tricky. But what happened was one of the deals I made as a result of the script was I was hired to adapt a book at Warner Brothers for Sandra Bullock and the adaptation they loved. So the, the energy was great. And um, 
I found somebody who uh, was willing to give me the money to make the movie. I was trying to make it low budget for about three million. And uh, he said to me, could you get one, you know, could you get one of the stars you've worked with to, you know, everybody wants you to bring, you know, a Johnny Depp, you know, who will do a favor for you and make your movie. And I said, well, I don't really have that relationship with Depp anymore. And uh, he said, well, who do you, you know, which star do you know? I can sell a big star foreign and and cover the cost of this. I said, well, I just, I'm kind of close with Sandra Bullock now because I just did an adaptation. I said, but there's there's not a role for her. The, the girlfriend is is a minor part. Right. It, it, he, he said, he said, how long would it take you to shoot her part out? I said, I could probably shoot her part in a week. He goes, great. He said, offer her $2 million for one week's work. I'll make your movie. And $2 million is good for a week's work for anybody. Ooh, yeah. I called up and I made the offer. I spoke to Gazina, her sister, who ran the company. I told her, I found the money for the movie, blah, 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 blah. Even though, you know, it's just somebody's <laughs> word, right? Um, I get a call three or four days later. You know, hi, Eric, it's Sandy. She was incredibly polite. I thought, oh, she's, you know, she likes me. She doesn't want to ruin the relationship. She's, she says, listen, I want to thank you for your generous offer. And I was like, oh shit, here it comes, here it comes. And she says, but um, I don't want to take that money. I want to put that 2 million into the movie and I'd like to produce it. I was like, oh my God, you know, yeah. this, is, this is, you know, one of the two biggest female stars in the world. It was Julia Roberts and Sandy, that, that was it. Yeah. So then now what happened was this kind of the machine, when you work with a star that big, there's a whole kind of other machine that comes with you, what comes with her yeah. and with that big star. And now we've gone from being a $3 million movie that Lumiere had offered, um, also offered me the money to make the movie. The, the producer who'd, uh, who'd originally proposed that deal to me, he was a kind of a low B player and he was, he was totally gracious. He said, man, you got to run with this. Good luck. Uh, you know, I was like, um, CAA was her agency and CAA, I, you know, I consider a, a truly dark force in the industry. So they're not like the other rapacious agents. They are a cult. Right. Sorry. I know, you know, yeah. um, and they were, they wanted to push my movie into a deal with a distribution arm of Disney. It was kind of, I didn't really understand how they were going to finance an independent film, keep it independent, but own it. And it was, and suddenly I was in the Disney machine with a kind of offbeat film that didn't fall into their wheelhouse. Right. So Gunshy was the best of times and the worst of times for me. It was an amazing experience to direct. The politics of it were essentially why I walked away from the business. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's how gunshy, you know, it, it you know, the, the, nobody, re nobody in the business wanted to see Liam Neeson in a comedy, you know, they didn't really, um, it was, it was kind of dumped out for release with no money behind it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what happened. Yeah. It's a shame because that was before he did Love Actually. So you saw his softer side. In, in that and then you know taken blew up so that was like i think his role right after star wars 
I'd imagine, right? The movie that came out right after Star Wars. He he just done Star Wars, and yeah, and he and he 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 did my film right after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was great in it. I mean, he he shows definitely a, another side of himself. Oh, Liam showed levels. You know, there was he reminded me a little bit of 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 uh, Gary Cooper doing comedy. You know, this kind of kind of like this this kind of vulnerable dignity. Right. that very few actors can get, uh, but yet an audience have got to really be ready. Um, you know, Liam had always played a kind of, you know, kind of stiffer, kind of, uh, you know, dramatic character. And uh, that was, you know, a, 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 kind, a less dimensional kind of masculinity that he was, he was slotted into. And this was, this was a, a big, a big change. Right. What was he your first choice, or how was he brought about? No, he was not my first choice. Was Jeff Bridges, and Jeff Bridges, the studio refused to take him. Um, Disney said no. He's just done this terrible movie called The Big Lebowski. Spectacular. <laughs> uh, it didn't make money, and as far as they were concerned, you know, it was me they were mediocre reviews. They weren't. It wasn't like it is now. It's a cult classic now, um, but they they would not back us going to him. Sandy was friends with him, and I was like, Sandy, just go give him the script. And she, for some reason, she I, she was very mainstream in her in industry approach. And um, as the producer of the film, um, I couldn't get her to go there. Hmm. Uh, and uh, for reasons I just don't know. Right. Um, so there was a casting process and Liam was on the list. Hmm. We got word that he read the script. He, uh, I, right when they were, we were in prep, but the studio had given us one week to cast that role or they were going to shut us down. Wow. Now, if they shut, you know, or postpone the film, that that means you're dead. Yeah. Um, so we, we gave the script, we got word on Monday that Liam loved the script. He wasn't sure if he wa was ready to do a comedy with a first time director, but he, uh, he, was, he was flying off on Friday to, Do to the Deauville Film Festival in France. And uh, he talked to us when he got back. Only problem was, was we were going to be shut down by the time he comes back. So I said, okay, ask him if he'll do a meeting. I'll fly in tomorrow. I got the red eye on, I, I don't know if it was a Monday or Tuesday night. I got the first red eye I could. I, I, I went, I, I showered in the hotel room, hadn't had any sleep, met him in a bar. We had a glass of a, a beer together. We just, it was just magical chemistry. I got back on the plane. I was just like, wow, this is great. Then we, we got word, uh, Spielberg just called Liam and asked him to be in his uh, remake of The Haunting. Uh, Spielberg offered him $8 million to star in The Haunting. We were offering him 75000 which is F-Schedule Guild minimum, to star in our movie. I'm just, we were so close. He called Spielberg and said, I want to do this comedy with this guy. Push the haunting. They put. He had Spielberg push the haunting so that he could do this film. He was just a champ, absolutely, and he was heaven to work with. Even, and and this film, he really carried the film. Yeah. Uh, he and Oliver Platt. That was the love story in the film. Yeah. Oliver was, and they just adored each other, and they were like, 
the biggest problem on the set was being able to finish a take with the two of them because they were laughing so much and having so much fun with the characters and the giggling that it would be like, oh God, guys, stop it. We have to do a take. Right. I'm and glad, you know, Liam got paid for The Haunting, but The Haunting was just God awful. It was horrendous. Wow. So, I mean, so it was, got paid, it was, but yeah, it was just like, yeah. oh man. If, if uh, I the plane, I walked off the plane. That's how bad it was, you know. It, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was, it was, and the original haunting was very, very atmospheric, very creepy. I saw it as a kid on a black and white TV. I was, you're terrified. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I remember that yeah. one too. It was really well. Did did yeah. uh, Sandra like the finished product? Wasn't she? I'm not sure. I mean, I think she knew what happened was we had a preview, and it previewed. We had a. I was like. Must be three, four hundred people in the audience. Right. The laughter, I had no idea the film was that funny. The laughter was so intense that you couldn't hear the next line. And what happened was Disney thought, as a result of the first preview, that they had a commercial comedy on their hands. It wasn't a commercial comedy, it was an offbeat, you know, half, half, it was a kind of tweener film. Right. You know, it, was, it wasn't really art house. It was, you really needed, a, you know, a Miramax to know, you know, not that I want to invoke Harvey's company, but they knew how to release that kind of film. Disney did not. They'd never done a film like that, and they didn't get it. Um, Joe Roth, so Joe Roth um, got it, but he left. He, he knew how, that he, how he wanted to release it, but he left to run a studio in, in between. And so we were kind of, so I don't know. Sandy's a very, she's a very astute um, politician for a Sandra Bullock film, but this wasn't a Sandra Bullock film. I don't really, certainly there was a lot of tension between us. It kind of ruined a very nice relationship, which I deeply regret because she did champion me. And it was, it was hard when you're fighting, when you're fighting uh, an entity like Disney and CAA, yeah. When you're with an icon and you're asking or pressuring her as a producer to help you battle them, and that's not really where her bread is buttered. Right. Um, but yeah, that that was um, that was a regret and a very difficult. I, I had no why I was out of my depth, you know. While so the reward for having this amazing preview was they fired my brilliant editor Pamela Martin, who did. Um, uh, what was what was the movie where, where Alan Arkin is the junkie grandfather? Uh, oh, um, Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. And she was a great editor. I think she was nominated for that. So the reward for this great preview was um, they fired her and hired a studio hack who comes in and you know just chops the movie to pieces to make it fit the commercial you know joke you know cut joke cut joke cut and it was a horrible cut. And I, I, I saw this and I was, and it didn't test better than we tested. I think it tested like two points lower. And um, I just said, I, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. So I was at a friend's house in LA and I was there with the great Robert Altman, okay. who is known for fighting studios his entire career. So um, we'd gotten a bit friendly. And um, I said, Bob, I said, uh, you know, one friend is advising me, just be a good soldier, listen to the studio, let make them want you back so you can do your next picture, you know? And I was like, yeah, but if I do a shitty movie, 
all I'm going to be known for is a guy who did a shitty movie. At least I want to go down, you know, with my, you know, with a cut that I can believe in because I can't put my name on this thing. So I said to Bob Altman, I, I said, Bob, you know, what should I do here? I'm between a rock and a hard place. Do I let them, do I, am I a good boy who, who lets them release a shitty movie hoping that, you know, it might save me or do I fight? And Altman says to me, he goes, you're fucked either way, kid. You might as well fight. So I did. I fought and, you know, and uh, I got, I got 50% better. I got closer to the cut that I could put my name on, not the cut that I felt was, you know, the one I wanted to release, but you know, that was that. Did you ever, you know, think about going back and making a director's cut of it? No, uh, but I was asked, uh, was really, it, it was funny because when, when uh, the industry, when the media knows that the studio is not behind your film, they kind of smell blood. Okay. So we, I remember when the film was released, we, and amazingly, we got a spectacular review, uh, review in the New York Times on the front page, right. uh, and we got sm smashed in the LA Times. And um, so we, we had, there were more shitty mainstream reviews, but really like all the good reviewers, you know, it was good with us. In any case, this leads us to, over the years, you know, it's it's kind of gone, done really well in iTunes, really well, you know, on, you know, it had this run on Netflix, it had its run on, you know, Amazon. And over the years, people, the reviews keep, the ratings keep getting higher and higher. Whereas, you know, we started out with it, two and a half rating, you know, we're now getting three, three and a half, four, four and a half, five, six. And um, last year, uh, Kino Lorber did a Blu-ray release of the film and they asked me to do a director's commentary. Okay. And it's, and apparently it's, it's a really cool director's comment. If anybody wants to buy the Blu-ray on Kino Lorber, it's, it's, uh, it really takes you, uh, you know, into what was happening in, within, creatively within the scene and some of the kind of, you know, riffs that, that kind of go off into what was happening business-wise behind some of these moments too. So, yeah, no, there's no reason to do a director's okay. cut. And this is the 20th anniversary of the movie, so everyone... <laughs> 20th anniversary. Why should re revisit and get the Blu-ray, definitely. Yeah. But before we go, I just want you to, to promote your the website that's, that's currently out now. Oh, yeah. The Prom HQ dot com um go see what we're about okay great you're gonna oh okay you're gonna give us this give, give us a little put it right link down there I'm gonna, sorry. put it right down there um yeah. as i say we are building a virtual studio we're going to be going up one building at a time and um it is the next level of of how to do business within a film a new kind of film ecosystem so check us out that's awesome. But Eric, I, I really appreciate it. This was fantastic. Everyone check out all his work. I mean, it's, it's been fantastic. And uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you, man. And a special thanks to Eric for joining me today. Check out The Prom's website, thepromhq.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first Noel 19 or like the page Will Be My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem. 
shows on SoundCloud. It's also on Podbean. You can go to livingmyyouth.brothers.com for all your merchandise, t-shirts, hoodies, phone cases. It's all there. New episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everyone. We'll see you then.